Hi, thanks for downloading the podcast. I'm Matt Jarvis, the editor of Tabletop Gaming. This is part one of our UK Games Expo series of podcasts, in which I speak to game design expert and writer James Wallace and Tabletop Gaming's resident role-playing pro Richard Janssen-Parks about what they've seen on the show floor, among some other bits and pieces. Tune in tomorrow and Sunday for our roundups of the rest of the weekend, including other contributors from the magazine. And if you're at the show, don't forget to swing by the Tabletop Gaming booth at J18 in Hall 1 to grab an exclusive subscription deal, the latest magazine, featuring our countdown of the 150 greatest games of all time as voted for by you, and more. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast. This is the first episode in the proper Tabletop Gaming podcast, but if you listen to our series on the history of Tabletop Gaming, that's still available. Uh, we are at the UK Games Expo. It's day one. It is Friday the 1st of June. We are sat next to a piano that we hope no one plays, and you'll probably hear some people wandering around in the background. Uh, but I'm joined today by James Wallace. Hello. Hi, James. How are you doing? Very well. Bit sweaty. It's, it's hot here. It is indeed very hot. I've had a lot of sweaty handshakes. <laughs> some of them good, some of them not so good. Mm, game of handshakes, yeah. Yes. You can never be sure. Can you have a good sweaty handshake on? Uh, some of them are very smooth. I think that's the... You can play it off as just being like, <laughs> I'm very smooth to grip. Uh, that voice discussing sweaty handshakes is Richard Jansen Parks. Hello, Hello Richard. There. Hi there. Uh, he is our resident RPG uh, expert. Yes, and, I am. Uh, I'm glad like there that James is our <laughs> resident design expert in all things Spilled ERs. Uh, yes, and, and various things. I'm kind of a gaming polymath, because I, I design role-playing games as well. Um, at some point, I'm going to quietly pull out a copy of Las Vegas, my latest, and pass it to Richard. Unless you've got one already. <laughs> no, sure. no, I, I, I mean... No, I don't. Excellent. Well, I've plugged my stuff now, so this that's, is, that's my fee for being on the show. An excellent plug. Well, <laughs> skillfully pulled off. But we, uh, like I say, we're on day one of UK Games Expo, and we're just going to discuss what we've seen around the halls, what's sort of taking your interest. So, James, if you don't mind kicking off, what's, what's catching your fancy? It's, I'm going to start with a void. I'm going to start with a really interesting thing, which is the nominations. The shortlist for the Spiel OCR came out, what, two weeks ago? And The Mind is the game that everyone's talking about, this bizarre game, which I have reviewed for the next issue of, of TTG. Um, and it's a game that is not like other games. You're simply laying cards in numerical order, but you're doing it without communicating with the other players. Nobody has copies. There are no copies on sale at the show. They have no UK distribution apart from one shop, Eclectic Games in Reading, who have not brought any for sale to the show. I've been asking around to try and find the mine because I don't have a copy myself. Yeah, it's, it's very, very odd. And it is a game that a lot of people are talking about. I brought my copy with me because I want to show it to people and I want to see how different styles of gamers encounter it and how they how they play it. So I'm it goes very badly if you're drunk. <laughs> so is it is it not that they've sold out? It's just that there were none here. To there begin is with. no UK distributor for the game at the moment, which is just very odd. I've heard you can pick it up on Amazon for about eight quid. Yes, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's on eBay. It's not expensive. No, it's, well, it's um, just numbered cards. Do be, right? it, it is numbered cards. If you've got the, the same publisher's previous spiel as your nominee, the game, you just lost oh, the game. It's a spieler. It, uh, no, it's uh, it's NSV or something like that. It's there. Are, company I've not actually come across before. But if you've got six Nimit as well, you can just use the cards from that. It's any deck of 1 to 100 cards will will suffice. Uh, so you can make your own homebrew version very, very easily. Uh, but I have to say the box version is, is very nice, if you've got it, which I have. Excellent. Smug. Well, that's a great recommendation uh, for a game that no one can find here today. <laughs> just a, a sort of smug plug from a, well, hopefully the, listen- the game he has that everyone wants. That hopefully the listeners find. will not feel bad about not being at the, at the expo. Uh, that's yeah. a fair point. 
And I think the Office Builder Yards nominees, a lot of them are still German exclusive. They are, yes. In the way. Yeah. I, I mean, you can pick them up and you can find the English language rules. Not dif- not difficultly. Sorry, it's been a long day. Um, but yes, there's, there's kind of an absence this year. Normally, these things are big and people are plugging them. But, uh, you know, for the biggest game award in the world, it's not got much of a presence here. Mm. It's, although Azul, of course, is everywhere. Azul is everywhere. That, yes. It has a, uh, a nomination, does it not? It does, it does have a nomination um, and it seems to be the favourite among gamers. But the thing about the Spiel is the other a lot of people forget is that it's not for gamey games, it's for family games. Uh, and if you look at their criteria for what's likely to win, they say it's for people who don't play a lot of families who don't play a lot of games. They might play one or two a year. So there's got to be easy accessibility and not too many thinky tactics. And the kind of stuff that will work well with kids as well. Whether Azul is that, I'm not sure. I don't have a sure. I don't think the mind is going to win it. I think the mind is too close to Hanabi, which won five years ago. They're not the same game at all, but it, Hanabi is also a game of playing cards in numerical order with constrained information. Oh, well, uh, when you put it like that. Yeah, you know. it's, it's, and it comes in a similar size box. But uh, yeah, no, it's an interesting one this year. So, Richard, what's been catching your eye Eddie well have you, do you look at board games as well as RPGs or you, well, yeah I mean I, I while I mainly write about RPGs you know I, I love board games I've played lots of board games with my friends and that kind of thing so yeah it's always it's always interesting for me because most of the writing around games that I do is to do with RPGs so quite often if I see an interesting a board game I just turn off the journalist part of the mind and just go and have fun for a bit which is a, a weird experience for a show like this being able to just chill out and, and relax but um I mean, there have been a few interesting RPG things that show as well. Obviously, the big one is uh, lots of... It's the um, possibly the first place you've been able to playtest to demo Pathfinder 2nd Edition, which I uh, leapt into this morning. And that seems... It, it laid some of the sort of fears I've had about reading the blogs. It's definitely still, definitely still Pathfinder. Absolutely. Well, they've said they've streamlined it, right? Because Pathfinder is, traditionally very crunchy. Yeah. Sort of it apart from it's a big old way. book. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it is. And with all of this stuff, so, so and from playing the game, and also from uh, going to a seminar with some of the folks from from Paizo, there's still it is still I mean it still sits very comfortably in its niche of being you know to be a bit reductionist D&D with more crunch there's still he's saying uh, there's still 10 pages of rules on alchemy there are still this is a light you know highly damaging piercing weapon that does the, you know still all of that stuff but it does have a lot of the more circumstantial bonuses, some of the fiddly maths and things that didn't kind of really make intuitive sense cut out. And yeah, that went surprisingly smoothly and very good. And interesting, it was my wife's first time ever playing a Pathfinder and she had a, she had a grand old time as a rogue, stabbing skeletons. Did you? How did you find that? Because I've heard them, one of the big changes is the change of the combat. So they've gone down to this, I think it's three actions and one reaction now. Yes. Uh, whereas they have. before it's a much more complex you know, and initiative system. Yeah, and they've made a few changes with the, initiative, with the initiative thing, but the change to the three actions, it didn't change things as much as I thought it would, because there was the... When we first got the the first uh, previews out there, 
and said, so there are three actions. So in theory, you can attack one time, two times, three times. You would end up being very, very static of, well, I'm going to just sit here and attack three times. That's the most efficient thing to do. But they've actually managed to, by removing attack opportunities from most people, so you can freely bounce around the battlefield much easier, and using fairly hefty penalties on multiple attacks, actually it plays fairly similarly to it would in an old, in the more old old fashioned games in the sort of in the previous editions and in D and D five e it it, 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 it the most important takeaway that I had was that, hey, it's it's still Pathfinder. Right. It's, it's not still, becoming D and D like fifth edition or anything like that. It's not going to start treading on no, the toes. I think they've I think they've learned some things from D and D, both in what to do and what their audience didn't react very well to. Um, but it still D and D. Still, still, did <laughs> still Pathfinder. Given that first edition Pathfinder was briefly two or three years ago outselling D and D fourth edition, yes, I it think. was. Now that D and D fifth is on this massive wave of repopularity back in the New York Times bestseller list, do you think Pathfinder second has got a chance of, of unseating the king once again? No, I think that. Just a very blunt, no, yeah, no chance. Plainly, right? um, I think that when Pathfinder was outselling D&D, it was a very specific time. That was the gap between 5th edition being announced and 5th edition being released. People said, oh, I'm not going to buy 4th edition books. Um, therefore, obviously, Pathfinder comes in and swoops up all the sales. I think that is understandable, and that's a... Thing that could happen in the event that Pathfinder takes yeah. off well and you know they're saying in four or five years six or seven years maybe D&D 6 comes out and there'll be the other thing but no they are such a when I speak to my friends who are interested in gaming but who aren't interested in role playing I say tabletop RPG they say what I say D&D oh and when you have that kind of brand ubiquity you have to screw things up royally to be fully unseated, and they're doing a pretty good job of it at the moment. Not, you, not screwing things up. They're not screwing things up. So yeah, yeah. It's only for a moment you think, yeah, yeah. they're screwing they're, things they're up. They're doing a too. great job of doing that. No, they're doing, they're doing a fine job with the product, I think. And while there's definitely a place for, for Pathfinder, I think that definitely there is a large section of the the, the audience that wants that D&D experience a bit crunchier. I want to be really good at doing this one thing, really good at tying knots or that kind of thing. Um... I think that Dindy's too big to be unseated entirely. But Pathfinder has the crunchies baked into the core book rather than, whereas D&D, a lot of it comes in with expansions and extra sets. So I can yeah. see there is a, there's definitely a core market for oh, that. absolutely. There is definitely people... In, I will definitely get everything Pathfinder because I love d and but sometimes I want to make something a little bit more specialised or I want to pick certain feats to make some variants like that. So, and that's not really a thing you can do in D&D, but it definitely is in, in Pathfinder. That's where, that's where it makes its niche. How did it compare to Starfinder, which obviously came out in between Pathfinder first edition? I think it came out last year. Yeah, Pathfinder, I... But it was built on that I, foundation. I, I remember playtesting Starfinder at the show last year so um, it's Starfinder was very much built on the base 
Pathfinder, all the Finder words. Starfinder was very much built on the base Pathfinder rules, which in turn were based on D&D 3.5 rules, and those are not modern rules. They are 20 years old or so, and I think that with Starfinder, it isn't, I don't think it's had the reaction they hoped it would. I don't think it's taken off in the same way they hoped it would. And I think part of that is that quite a few of the rules felt quite old and felt quite clunky and I think that uh, yeah, Pathfinder 2 is definitely an evolution of that. James, on the board game side, what have you been spotting that, that is it the show that sort of grabbed your attention that maybe, I, I know a lot of things have been at Essen or... or yeah, I think a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's scheduled for Gen Con release or Essen release. It didn't, I didn't feel like anything enormously new. Um, I've I've been snagging hobby stuff to be honest, you know, rubbing my, my, my personal... Uh, <laughs> holes in the collection that's a horrible uh, <laughs> metaphor analogy so that whatever is, thing oh yes <laughs> you, can, you can tell I've been up since five um, Oinker here I love Oink, yes. Oink. they're a strange little show. not really strange but they do these beautiful little aesthetic games and they've got a new one and I can't even remember what it's called Troika uh, Troika Troika yes um, and it's in exactly the same tiny box as, as all their other things and it appears to be a science fiction thing and it's mostly a box full of counters um, I just can't wait to get to grips with it because the design is just so beautiful and aesthetic but the other thing my score of the, of the show their previous game startups which I reviewed for the last issue of Tabletop Gaming um, is about startup companies and, and, and little franchises and stuff like that and one of them is a coffee company called Octo Coffee which has a value of eight and they've got an Octo Coffee mug and I saw it on their website and it was like I will unless I pay £50 to ship this from Japan I will never ever see one and I saw one and it was like how much is it I think it was £16 money down um, and it's beautiful and I can't wait to drink coffee from my Octo Coffee mug because I am at heart an enormous goob yeah, the, sh- the show is so good for that weird stuff that I, I would never. I don't. If I was, you know, on Amazon or whatever, I would never. I would think, oh, I'm gonna spend ten pounds on this. When you're here, all of a sudden the purse strings are a little Very bit looser, perhaps. Yes. I've bought some uh, fancy uh, metal dice, which are going to do terrible, terrible things to my kitchen table. Yes. And, um, leave enormous dents and make horrible noises, and not care. It's gonna be wonderful. We have a glass dining room table, so that would end have oh my God. a die that's <laughs> no. sort of bigger than, you know, a, a regular die. It's like, is this yeah. just going to go straight through to the floor? Are we yeah. going to just shatter no, this I, table? I which think, is a great story. I think that the ones I got, uh, which are from D and Dice, uh, they're f- from the, the Battle Scarred range, which I think is ones that are uh, uh, slightly misprinted and misaligned in ways. I think they're brushed steel and they weigh a ton. Oh, God. But yes, you're completely right about money has less value at an expo. Yeah, it's not weird. Yeah, it's so I weekend on Osprey's beautiful re-release of High Society. It's just... Oh, yes, High Society. It's so, once amazing. you see it in the flesh, once you see those gorgeous, gorgeous cards, you I have to have that yes, game. I think it's Medusa Dollmaker. Um, it could well be. the illustrations, but yeah. they are fantastic. It's yes. sumptuous. All the art direction on the recent Osprey releases has been so good. And they're just... They look absolutely yeah. lovely. They feel nice in the hands. I, I got London as well. I finally succumbed. Oh, uh, yeah, London is also beautiful. Yes. But High Society particularly, I think it's one of those sort of bidding games that isn't... It's not Canizia's finest. That's obviously modern yeah. art. I don't think it compete with that or sort of raw. Mm. It has enough of a twist in the person with the least money gets 
just chucked out and then you're trying to it flips it at point so you're not trying to get these sort of social disgraces but I I just absolutely love it it's just a good time and it plays very quickly I think even compared to modern art I mean modern art's probably about 40 minutes but I decided he's 15 20 something like that yeah it's uh, it's it's a really fast one. it's fast and very so slow I'm just going to brag for a moment Ian Livingston is, is here with a big stand of fighting fantasy stuff because they yes. relaunched fighting fantasy um, a couple of months ago but he also at the beginning of the show which is when I wandered past was selling off a few items from his personal game collection wow I scored a mint condition German first edition of Tigris and Euphrates from Ian Livingston's personal games collection that is my score of that the show that is quite a boast that is quite a boast I'm not going to tell you what I paid for it <laughs> a, enti- an entirely reasonable sum I assume <laughs> yes I imagine the only thing I, the only thing I've heard that he's well really into is small world I know he absolutely he loves small world. small world I mean he has a prodigious you know world class games collection yes that is unsurprising several thousand titles um, which I I may be allowed to go around and see in the near future for a project I, that I can't yes. talk about I always get I mean there are so I always get very, very... I'm, I'm normally very fine with, with, with interviewing people and people. It's my job, after all. But Ian Livingston is one person that I've sort of met a, a few times and I always am intensely nervous because that was my my first introduction to any sort of RPG, any sort of role-playing game of any type with a, the, a, a fighting fantasy books back in the day. So it's it's a very weird... Just the sight of the cover of um, A Forest of Doom takes me back to sort of being six or seven and having no clue of what I was doing but loving it anyway I think it's particularly time, uh, particularly good time to bring them back as well. Yeah, like seeing this like big narrative push, you know, you've got Gloomhaven, which isn't quite fighting fantasy, but it's it's drawing from those kinds of branching mechanics and very much the gameplay-driven thing. We saw something earlier. Uh, I was chatting to you about it, James, yeah. which is called uh, Chronicles of Crime, um, which is then taking it further. It's sort of Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, but without a book, and instead everything is on a companion app, and the only cards you have just have. QR codes. Uh, so you're just continually scanning QR codes and it has some really clever ideas. So you can go to a location as you would in Consulting Detective. So you'd scan that and you'd get a, a paragraph or so of text. It would tell you, okay, we found a body here. And then you can scan um, certain uh, suspects or people who are at the location. And as you scan them, they'll give you a piece of dialogue. They will also unlock other information. So if you scan a particular clue and return to someone you've already spoken to, they'll have a different piece of dialogue for you. Um, And there are certain uh, sections where you can... So you may speak to someone or you may go to somewhere and it will say you can either interrogate suspects here or you can search for clues. And if you search for clues, you can then enter this almost virtual reality. They have a tiny pair of magnifying goggles that you stick to the front of your phone and then hold the phone up and you look around a 3D environment and as you spot objects... So it's a, a VR thing. Yes, yeah, it's it's a VR light in a way. It's very mm. rudimentary. You can't play it without the tiny microscopic goggles. You lose some of the feeling, although it's very odd. Um, regardless but you look around and you'll call to your teammates oh I see a magazine so they'll find the card that has magazine written on it and you'll scan that QR code and it was really interesting to see an evolution of the kind of book driven stuff we'd sort of seen it in obviously Consultant Detective we'd seen it in things like This War of Mine but to have it offloaded to a companion app was interesting in a way it unlocked these new ways of 
letting, like I say, letting you scan in clues, letting you have these branching, interesting narratives. But it also took a lot of the feel out of it. Although people could read off the screen, you weren't sort of passing around a book, you were passing around a phone. And it kind of lost some of the connection to the, the story and the actual gameplay of it. It felt at points that you could just have it as a, a point and click adventure or a text driven adventure. It was kind of interesting to see. I don't think, I can't remember the publisher now, but they're not a particularly big publisher. They're the one, uh, the company doing the Fruit Ninja oh, uh, right. like Joyride games. Right. Um, so they've got these kind of board games that are just board games based on apps, and then another board game that has an app tied into it. Um, but it's ah, Lucky Duck Games. Someone Lucky has just shown me. Uh, so I think it's interesting. It's still in prototype phase now. I think it's coming to Kickstarter either later this year or the beginning of next year. So it'll be interesting to see whether they manage to bring some of the gameplay back onto the physical side. Um, it, it was just interesting to see where these companion apps are going, especially with smaller studios. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like the thing I was just playtesting, uh, Ignace, Ignacy Trezoric's... I've known Ignacy since the 90s, and I still can't pronounce his surname. But uh, he designed Robinson Crusoe and he runs Portal Games in Poland. His new one is called Detective. It's launching at Gen Con, uh, but he was been he's been running some close play tests here. And again, it's Sherlock Holmes plus plus with a digital end on it. But the majority of the storytelling and the clue finding is on cards. It's very much card based. Uh, but there's a website where you have to enter data in. And the advantage of, of that website is it accumulates all the evidence that you've got, so you can track it in in one place. All the fingerprints you've discovered, all the rest of that. Um, um, so you don't have to be pouring through things and flipping between pages in a book. It's all on your on your web app. You have app. to be connected to play. You have to be online. online. That is, well. I think, it's not a standalone app. It's a web page. So you can play it on any device. So they don't have to do an Android and an Apple version. And I think that may be a smart way of doing it. Also, because there's quite a lot of data, it needs a bigger screen. It's a laptop or a large tablet rather than a phone. Um, but again, clearly it wears its its dues to Sherlock Holmes on its, on its sleeve. But it's it reinvents the experience. Um, and it's also, I think you get five or six cases in the box, and there's a meta campaign as well. They all tie into a larger plot. It seems really interesting. We really enjoyed ourselves. The main thing that interested me is it seems to be quite replayable as well. The case only has one outcome, but there are different ways to get to it. There are different paths through the network of clues, and you may discover things along the way that will tie in in different ways to some of the later cases. Uh, so I'm quite excited for that. How did you find the writing? Because First Martians, which is yeah. also Ignacy, I found really intriguing as a prospect, which is also an app-connected game. It was more of a worker placement sort of running a simulation um, a sort of simulation of survival on Mars and there were it was scenario based but I found that it just didn't really deliver for me on either the gameplay side I found the worker placement didn't really chime with me and then the narrative hooks weren't deep enough to keep me invested that way but how did you find the writing in Detective? It's um, it's interesting I because I used to be an editor I've edited fiction I've, I've written for national newspapers um, and not The Guardian everyone's in, journal, in games journalism has written for The Guardian I wrote for the Sunday Times. Um, <laughs> it's it's quite dry. Um, there's a bunch of atmosphere. There's some nice description. You're never quite sure whether the thing is, you know, you go, oh, that's just fluff. And then four cards later, you realize that wasn't fluff, and you've got to go back to it. Um, there are, but there are moments, you know, I was about to say, Ignacy, you know, if you just want me to take an English pass on this, when he said, this is in manufacturing, there's a couple of moments where you just go, that's a bit of a Polishism. That's not quite how we... We would say on where you've used at it, just that kind of thing. Um, minor, 
minor adjustments that just jerk you a little bit out of the, out of the uh, immersion within the story, which is a real shame. I don't not buy it because of that. Just don't expect it to be, you know, novel quality prose. I mean, Consulting Detective had its flaws in the, the writing as well. Yeah. From the translated from French. Yes. So, because the, that, the, the original yes. was written by Americans oh, and yes. then translated into French. Right. And the then Eastern rather than going back to the original <laughs> American text, they retranslated it from the French. I don't understand that. But um, yes, the games publishers are curious, curious people. Uh, but most of the Sherlock Holmes writing is really good, and it's really it's you feel if if not actually Conan Doyle, you feel in the world of Victorian London. Um, and this isn't quite that, and it's kind of almost it's Richmond, Virginia, but there's nothing that identifies it strongly as Richmond, Virginia, except the use of the words Richmond, Virginia, uh, <laughs> several times. Um, but it, it's it felt it's properly gamey there's some lovely kind of uh, resource management stuff in there you've got to manage the, the amount of uh, time you've got and also the other resources you've got for um, interrogations and stuff like that how much you can stress people and if you do certain things right and follow certain paths you can get additional ones um, it's it's clever it's smart the mystery is intriguing um, in a way that some of the Sherlock Holmes ones you just go oh for heaven's sake <laughs> um, it's not as I said in my no, I didn't review it, but I did an article about it. It's not called Sherlock Holmes' insulting detective for nothing, because Holmes always at the end goes, well, this was blitheringly simple. You go, no, it wasn't. It was just absolutely obtuse. <laughs> Whereas this one, you can work out the strings. You can, in the same way as when you're watching a, a TV cop show, you go, they did it. But in this, you have to know why. You have to have the chain of evidence. Um, and that's the interesting part, putting together the cause and effect, what happened and why. Um, it's, it's clever stuff. It's, it's interesting all the talk about sort of games that are integrated with devices or with or apps because as someone who's less directly involved with the board game side of things I mean, is that a trend that we're seeing is it going well because I must admit I've played a few few board games without integration uh, XCOM and I think I've a Manchester Madness but with the, yeah, the second app. edition yeah. um, and honestly it's always kind of felt unsatisfying a bit weird and clunky at least personally to me uh, see I love I love Mansion Second Edition. I think it works really well because you have that mystery. Whereas before you had a GM who, who knew every player yeah. um, with mansions it's that feeling of it just smooths the whole process for me anyway um, but I think it can be I guess because of just the extra development that's required the extra writing you know sometimes they're, they're board game designers they're not necessarily developers and sometimes they're trying to handle both ends and it even a, U, a simple UI driven app that doesn't have any fancy sort of cogs and, and displays can take a lot to, to put together which I think at least for me was the, the case of First Marvel I think it's been updated since, um, but again, it's you know it, it can be such a hit and miss. Um, but there have definitely been bad ones. Where words, for instance, I always I found that the voiceover wasn't particularly great, and I kind of felt it was a bit needless. I mean, there's where words you could always just play inside at some point. Yes, and, uh, you wouldn't need a phone and a kind of dodgy American accent. I was I was going to mention Oink again, who did Insider, yes. um, and who also have an app development arm and do games for the App Store, but who do not do not do app enabled board games. None of their board games has an app uh, component. I find that really interesting. But, um, so in terms of what are you trying to, well, what are you looking forward to for the next few months, I suppose? Anything you've seen here or just things that you know of coming out that... Uh 
Well, obviously, Pathfinder 2. I mentioned that. Uh, yeah, so that's in playtest at the moment, right? That's, uh, it's, it's in playtested for around it, a year. Like well, the first it's one. in it's in in demos now, so very, 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 very limited stuff, and nothing really sort of be. You know, we weren't allowed to take a photo of any of the stuff that we were playing. There. Right, playtesting is in August. Though, just August, 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 August is when it kicks off, and then August I think it's about a year. So. Yeah. Um, Warhammer Fantasy RPG. Yes, that's Cube yes. Sevens. Yes. So they're making the fourth edition. Fourth. Yeah. Fourth. So, yes. Yeah. Um, and they're also making an Age of Sigma Age of, RPG, which is yeah. separate, obviously, which, because it's not Warhammer Fantasy. No, which is going to be very confusing because they're very kind of, as someone who has been a fan of the Warhammer universe over years, they're kind of quite similar in many ways. One great of the other, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Not a million miles. So because one of one is kind them both. One is kind of generic fantasy moved on about a hundred years, and one is much more trademarkable. <laughs> yes, everything's names are suddenly um, you know non-standard words that can be copyrighted, for example. Intellectually protected, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's why they blew up the old world. Uh, I, used to, I used to publish Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay back in the okay. 90s. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've dealt with games selection and all that stuff. And I have to say, I, I liked second edition. I didn't really get on with third edition. Third, no. Third what I've seen, it was Fantasy Fly. It was, they tried to do, it was one of the first role-playing games where they did a lot of cards, a lot of specialist dice, and it didn't quite work. But fourth edition looks like it's hit the sweet spot. Um, apart from this, I love the art direction. Hmm. Um, John Hodgson, their art director, is a genius. I've worked with him in, in the past. He did some stuff for us back in the days of first edition. Um, and he's got most of the covers from Ralph Horsley, who I've uh, yes. worked with extensively. And their narrative, there's a narrative between the covers, the signature characters recur from cover to cover to cover in different situations. So it's lovely. And the quality of them, it's so high. Their work is, is sublime. I think you have said it's based on second edition rather than third. Yeah. But yeah. it's interesting Fantasy Flight because obviously they have recently come out of Genesis which is another game driven by sort of custom dice and, and this yeah. kind of thing. And I think... I reviewed a Genesis Flag. I quite, I quite enjoyed it. There's always a weird thing with generic games of RPGs. They can easily come across as being very, very flavourless, very bland, and also often quite complicated. Because when you want to make a system where you can do anything from ha- hacking a bank vault's security system to a firing a lightning bolt at a dragon, there's a temptation to make a system for everything. This is, this is how you hack code. This is how you cast magic. And they managed to get away from that without making it overly, like, while still making it reasonably crunchy. I quite enjoyed that about it. And they've since come out with, I think, a Terranoff. Yes, I think the, uh, that's in PDF from that. I think the hardback is coming out. At some point they're really soon. trying to, to make Terranoff a thing. They've had Legacy yeah. of Dragonhold, which is set in Terranoff. They had the Room Wars miniatures game, uh, which is obviously building on Roombound and, and all sorts of things. But do you think it will work from what you've seen of Terranoff? When I played the Room Wars miniatures game, I found that the mechanics were really interesting and they've since kind of adapted those, although very loosely, for Star Wars Legion. But the actual world was very just bland. Like it didn't, it was just fantasy. It was just, yeah. here are some skeletons, here are some kind of goblin guys. I don't know. I got Rune. Uh, that when it first came out and it was just kind of why should I play this rather than anything else it gives me the mechanics as you say are fine but the background gives me nothing that I can't get anywhere else one of the more interesting RPGs I've, I've seen is uh, Spire which is put out by uh, yes this is Grant Howitt yes Grant Howitt I've I've <laughs> I've bought a lot of Grant 
quite how it's past work. I've played very little of it. But, um, because it's always been wonderful ideas that are implemented in very interesting ways. Um, Unbound, which was a wonderful idea, the last game, uh, the last major game I think they put out. Um, rather than using dice, you used a pack of playing cards, just standard playing cards that you marked up in certain ways. And that was a wonderful idea. Uh, and I never actually got anyone around the table to play because it just required a bit of faff. But Spire looks fascinating. It's got such interesting, weird, wonderful ideas and incredible art. You can play one of the classes. I was, I was looking through the, um, the, the contents of the front of one of the classes is a midwife. And when you play a fantasy RPG as a midwife, you know that there's something at, at very least interesting. It's very politically that. charged, right? Is it about, yeah. it's about a sort of dark elves, it's sort of a seedy underbelly of... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an oppressed underclass. Yeah. And that's incredible art, really fascinating work there, really interesting stuff. I, I worked with Grant on the reboot of Paranoia that came out last year, and he is just a wild man to work with. He is so brimming with interesting ideas and just stuff completely out of left field, new approaches to role-play, new approaches to mechanics. It's, it's stuff is perpetually interesting. Like you, I've never actually brought any of it to the table, um, but I will read it vociferously and, and you know, always be entertained just by the books themselves. In fact, I was, I was talking to Grant about this yesterday and he said, well, you bought it, so... <laughs> Shrug. <laughs> I swear, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, you don't need to sell an idea at some point. It doesn't matter if that idea necessarily follows through. Sometimes it's more interesting to see sort of a failed, interesting idea. Not saying that Grant's work is failing, but no, no, you know, no, no. sometimes the idea is worth it alone. I mean, on the thought of 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 ideas and of incredible art, one game that I essentially stumbled into, I was uh, wandering around with Owen uh, Duffy, who's another ah, yes. in we It'll be on oh, tomorrow's podcast. We were playing a game called uh, Art Deck. Ah, I don't know if you've seen that. Yes. So this was featured in the Kickstarter from Scratch column in ah. the magazine. So we've been following the creation of it essentially from when they first, well, when they first had the idea that they came to me and put out a call for Kickstarter projects that were in the works, yeah. just to see, give a behind the scenes of how Kickstarters work, essentially, because I think there are so many out there and people don't really know oh, yeah, the realities because there are delays and people get very pissed off and are just like, oh, where's my game? And don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of producing a game or writing the rules of a game or, you know, Anything like that. It's, it's amazing how many things I've kickstarted, been anticipating at on date X. Yeah. Date, date X passes, and then two years later, a box arrives in the mail. Oh, yeah! yeah. I'm a Las Vegas, which I kickstarted. It was five years late, and uh, you know, I apologize profusely for that. <laughs> but I think the five year wait shows in the quality uh, shows in the quality of the game, games fans. Um, yeah, it happens. All kinds of stuff happens, uh, production delays. Budgets change. The price of shipping stuff yeah. from America quadruples. It, yeah, um, and because mostly it is first-time producers who are unfamiliar with it, they can be taken for a ride. Uh, there was one I heard of recently taken for a ride by their accountant who basically stiffed them for the money. Wow, you know, because you know you finish your Kickstarter, an enormous wad of change lands in your bank account. If you're working with someone unscrupulous, they may take it straight <laughs> out and run off with it. I mean, yeah, I, our deck is just. I had a great time with it. It's a really simple idea, really great a party game that no one wins, everyone wins, you've made art. It's an incredible idea. 
Do you think we're seeing sort of a, a fall in Kickstarters in general? I mean, there are dozens here, but it seems like at some point it just hit like saturation point. There were so many every week. 80% and, of, I was going to say that at least 80% of the games here, that's maybe saturation, but most of the games here that I've not already heard of or aren't through a major publisher that I've already heard of. You see them, oh, check out a Kickstarter. Yeah. They're either on Kickstarter now, or they're coming to Kickstarter in a week, or they're coming to Kickstarter later this year. Yes, or in September or March next year. So many, particularly in the kind of in the smaller all two stands. Yeah. Everyone seems to be, yeah. we're about to kickstart this, we are kickstarting yeah. this. Well, from your experience, sorry, yeah. Richard, and from your experience as a designer, James, like, yeah. you know, have you just seen that people aren't interested in taking this stuff to publishers anymore? Is it just a. No, I think uh, people are, but uh, I think if you've got the urge to maintain creative control, um, it depends. Some people see it as a way to get rich quick because, you know, you talk about enormous money. So you talk about uh, the Batman game, which took one and a half million on day one. Yeah. Of, Everyone expects yes. to take... I mean, it, only, it, it ended up... Batman, I think, ended up on three and a half or something like that. So it wasn't... Everyone thought it was going to blow down doors, and, and it didn't. But, um, you know, the reason to do a Kickstarter is to maintain creative control, but at the same time, suddenly be aware, you have to be aware that you're running a business. Um, and I talk to a lot of people about this because I run a consultancy that's my main day job um, and it's if you're not prepared to literally start a games business do not run a Kickstarter because you will have to get into not only manufacturing but accounting and tax and international shipping and all the rest of that and it's a huge logistical can be a huge logistical nightmare and the bigger your Kickstarter goes the bigger the logistics you're going to have to contend with but I had dinner with Luke Crane who runs the, the board games the games section of Kickstarter a couple of nights ago um, they did 150 million in business through board games through games last year um, which is I believe uh, Luke said about a tenth of the total board game market was money that went through Kickstarter which is extraordinary you know though I am in no way surprised it's that much after after walking through, through, through that all and mm. thinking about all the stuff that I've paid money for on Kickstarter yeah. I'm not surprised yeah, it's but it's totally reasonable. But the fact that it's, it's, it's one platform has has been able to do that in a comparatively short it, space of time. It, I, I am a little. Cynic me always always worries about having when the industry is so invested in a single platform that isn't necessarily you know directly linked with with board games with the gaming as a sector having that that much reliance on Kickstarter to get all these games out is going to eventually bite us all in the ass one day. It's all going to collapse around our ears and. I suppose that's uh, always a risk we take. I mean, there's a, there is a lot of talk about, are we in a bubble at the moment? Is there going to be a crash? Is there going to be a slow deflation? Can we continue to expand at this rate? And what, uh, you know, it's being voiced around that asthma day may be up for sale. We don't know for sure, but there's certainly noises in, in that direction. It could all come to a, a shuddering halt in the very near future. Well, I mean, that's always... The Asma Day thing in particular always seems strange to people expect that to be this huge cataclysmic event because who's going to buy these games companies and then stop producing games? I suppose it's a doubt about it's um, you know the artistic or financial dimension mm. of it, but and it is impressive that one company has acquired such a vast reach over the industry. Yes. And one of the interesting things, I mean, I'm entirely speculating here, but Asmodee <laughs> has been quite famous for going in with a very light touch and not really interfering with the companies that they've bought out. And everyone's going, oh, this is fantastic, they're preserving the artistic vision. 
But if you're trying to sell to a hedge fund or a bunch of venture capitalists, they are looking for companies that they can go in and optimize by slashing costs and, and rationalizing and pushing all the systems mm. together. That is exactly what Asmodee have built. They have built a, a structure, a global structure that is absolutely right for brash young venture capitalists who don't understand gaming to throw a few billion at them, come in and just go, right, all the manufacturing in one place, we'll create a global distribution network and not understand the finesse of, of what makes the games industry work. We've just seen it, um, economist fans, uh, in Homebase. Homebase was taken over, the DIY chain, taken over by a bunch of Australians who paid a stupid amount of money for it two years ago, I think, and ran it into the ground because they thought they understood the British market. They had not done their research. They were too arrogant to, to do it. Um, they sold the chain last week for a quid. The entire Homebase chain, a quid. Um, that's how badly it can go wrong. And that's you know, that's home base. That's a massive, massive um, nationwide brand. Well, I suppose in some ways only time was ill, but I, I think we'll have to leave it there. But thanks very much for your time. James Wallace, thank you. Oh, God, absolute pleasure. And uh, Richard Jensen Parks, thank you for joining us. That's quite all right. That's great. Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll hopefully see you tomorrow if we can set this up again uh, with Dan <laughs> Jolin, Owen Duffy, and Sam Illingworth who will be joining us. Uh, so thank you for listening Good to people. the Tabletop Gaming Podcast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow for more from the show featuring Dan Jolin, Owen Duffy and Sam Illingworth. And don't miss your chance to grab the latest magazine and a subscription for a special price at Stan J18 in Hall 1 if you're attending this year's UK Games Expo.